My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello and welcome to a dark and spooky episode of FW Presents, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, continuing my series, Showcase Gene Colon, that looks at the work of my favorite comic book artist, the gentleman Gene Colon. When asked what character or series you would most associate with Gene Colon, I think the obvious answer is the 1970s Marvel horror comic, Tomb of Dracula. Colin drew the entire series, all 70 issues, so it was only a matter of time before we got to him on this podcast. And there are tons of podcasters that I could think of who would be great guests to talk about Dracula on this episode. But I reached out to an old friend who had stepped away from the microphone after covering the soul-sucking Secret Wars 2 on the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, as well as the much better but no less emotionally draining Squadron Supreme maxi-series. After all of that, I thought he needed a reward for his service. So joining me on this episode is friend of the podcast community, Greg Arujo. What's up, Greg? Oh, not much. Much like Dracula, I feel like I've risen from the dead to, <laughs> to rejoin the podcasting community. Um, I was prepared to be in my retirement for a long period of time, but you, Ryan, gave me my break many, many, many moons ago, and I felt like I owed it to you to, to make this journey at least one more time. I sired you, and I pulled that silver spoke out of your heart again. So <laughs> That pretty much sums it up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so folks, the story that we are covering today is not from the Tomb of Dracula comic, but rather the black and white Tomb of Dracula magazine that came out after the comic was canceled. Before we get into it, though, Greg, what is your history with Dracula in general and Marvel's version of Dracula in particular? As a child of the 70s, uh, you would come home from school and there would be the afternoon movie right before the news. And every so often they would have Monster Week. So uh, I would dutifully sit down in front of my television set with a big bag of chips and watch whatever vampire movie happened to come out that particular week. So hopefully – hope that they were all good, but I, you know, it all kind of fades together. Uh, but uh, I you know, enjoyed the original Bram Stoker and I've always been kind of a fan – I've always kind of enjoyed watching the the cheesier the movies that they would air during this uh, '70s uh, film series. Yeah, I, I, I'm there. I, I I feel like I've always known who Dracula was. Um, he was just like a big part of me. Like in particular, I would say he'd show up everywhere as being, you know, I guess public domain at that point. But he would show up in any types of movies. You'd see him in cartoons. You'd you'd see Bugs Bunny fighting him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, as a kid, like Halloween was such a big and important part of my childhood. Dracula was one of my very first Halloween costumes, that, at least that I had some sense of like picking out for myself that this is what I want to be. 
And, and I like I remember, and I, I told the story on uh, a Fire and Water Records episode. Like I used to come home, like or on Halloween night, I would go out trick or treating with my friends, and I would come home, and that was like the one night when I was allowed to stay up really late watching movies. And I think the first movie version that I remember was the Franklin Jello one from the late seventies. Ooh. Okay. And that one that one had an effect on me just because like for the first time it was like Dracula was I kind of got the sense of Dracula as a as a romantic and sexual creature that he wasn't mm-hmm. just like this old guy who was like uh, the the villain the monster and everything like he was actually something more of a character that had qualities that you would like and qualities that you would admire about people and that was kind of like the first time when I really got a sense of a three dimensionality to this character um that yeah. was I was going to say, yeah, a lot of like my early exposure to Dracula, other than maybe the comic book, would have been kind of the one-dimensional, he's kind of a joke in, mm-hmm. in the cartoons, Scooby-Doo, and not even just Dracula, just the whole concept of the vampire. I think we had to go into the late 70s and early 80s before it really started to, to, to flesh out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when it comes to the actual comic book version, and I've told this story ad nauseum on, on many podcasts so i'll just do like the short version um a friend of mine brought over his dad's shoebox of like marvel 70s comics or whatever like when we were growing up when we were just getting in probably the early 90s this would have been and it like stayed in my basement for just like one week while this guy was like staying or something like that and then he had to take it away but like in that box there was like an uninterrupted 20 issue run of tomb of dracula oh. Um, and I, I, like a half a dozen issues of Werewolf by Night, and then some other. Like I think there was a Ghostbuster. I think there was one random issue of of the Jungle Action Black Panther. I think it was the Gil Kane issue. But I just read like about twenty issues of Tomb of Dracula. I think it was started in the late twin no late teens. It, it was right around the time of the the crossover uh, with Werewolf by Night. Oh, okay. So I remember reading through those and just like looking at those like at night and everything and just pulling over and really kind of being fascinated by the story because it was a, a version of Dracula and it was a little bit different and it had uh, like these these characters who were trying to kill him. It was like, wait, is Dracula the main character of this or is he not? Is he the villain? Is he the... And just trying to like figure out this whole mythology, but I really, really like those and eventually I had to give those books back to, to their owner. Oh, I might have figured a way to try to keep those. <laughs> yeah. In, in hindsight... But then uh, in the early 2000s, I, I started getting into the Marvel black and white essentials volumes, and I got the mm-hmm. Tomb of Dracula essentials. And um, uh, I was surprised that like I didn't think the quality was sacrificed when going to black and white. Actually, it was probably improved by it, as as we kind of see. And that's yeah, that's something that I that I thought of because I eventually I got the Tomb of Dracula omnibus editions. But I've got volumes one and two, which collect the entire the comic book run, all mm-hmm. 70 issues plus the annuals and the giant size and stuff like that. I missed out on the opportunity to get the Omnibus Volume 3, which collects all of the magazines and the other like supplemental, like Dracula Lives and Tomb of Dracula magazines. And now I wish I had gotten that one. Well, but- to be honest with you, I picked up some of the essential volumes that – not necessarily Tomb of Dracula, but for the other, uh, for like the Rampaging Hulk, mm-hmm. uh, the black and white ones, they didn't reproduce very well as an essential. And to be honest, I think the uh, they edited out some of the more risque parts of sure. these black yeah. and white magazines for the essential volumes because we wouldn't want uh, younger readers to experience something in this comic that they shouldn't with all the blood and guts. Or in the case of the story that we're going to read, some boobies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, so, Leah, when did you first discover the Tomb of Dracula comic? 
it would have been kind of similar to you as probably in elementary school. Somebody brought in a copy of uh, Late in the Run, Tomb of Dracula, number 66. I remember it because it was the issue in which Dracula had lost his powers and he was immortal in New York City of, during the 70s. And, <laughs> and the one scene that stands out to me forever, it's burned into my brain. It is what I associate the Tomb of Dracula series with is the scene inside of the diner in which Dracula contemplates eating a greasy hamburger. <laughs> and I was enthralled by this issue. Unfortunately, it's late in this, the, the run and the spinner racks being what they were. I, I, that was the only issue I had read up until like the essential volumes in the 2000s. I mean, I knew who the character was, but that issue still remains my favorite <laughs> Dracula issue. And to be honest, I thought that it, 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 in many ways, it's similar to the what if issue that Conan comes to our time and mm -hmm. kind of follows this, almost the same beats. And I realized just this week that this issue came out before that what if. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, I mean, what do you think of Dracula as a character in the Marvel Universe? I like him separate from the Marvel Universe. I don't think he integrates very well because in the midst of the series, he takes on, I think, the Silver Surfer. Yeah, it's an issue 50, so I think. And it's been a while since I read that issue, but I really don't think it's three panels long where Dracula meets Silver Surfer, Silver Surfer zaps him, destroys him completely, and then flies off. I think there there was a tendency when you put him in the Marvel Universe of power creep. I think he mm -hmm. should be a little bit more powerful than the average superhero, but if he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Silver Surfer or even Doctor Strange, I start to get a little, you know, a little wary about by his uh, lack of success in, in turning the whole world into vampires. Yeah, I, I agree. I uh, I like the world of Tomb of Dracula with these characters and this world sort of being separate, being on a different universe or a different plane than the regular standard Marvel universe. Um, that said, I do like the idea of there being a Dracula analog in the Marvel Universe, a, a Lord of the Vampires, just because mm -hmm. I've seen that done, done in some good stories like a Doctor Strange Dracula-like story or something, or even, uh, which I just read, I think, last year, well, maybe 2018 now, um, the, the Captain Britain and the MI-13. Uh -huh. MI I mean, if you can't enjoy the possibility, uh, the, the concept of vampire bullets raining from the moon, you know why you're <laughs> Exactly. Comes. But at the same time, once it's Dracula, I don't know, I mean, and he didn't, why, look, he didn't look like Dracula in that, so it was, might as well you could have called him anything. So exactly. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at this point, and maybe there is one. Why hasn't uh, Dracula taken on either Galactus or Thanos? I mean, that seems to be the <laughs> yeah. next logical progression. Oh, you know what? I just re I just remembered um, because there was such a part, an important part of my collecting again in the in the early '90s were the the Impel Marvel Universe trading cards, and I had the Dracula card from that. So I did kind of always associate him with like the upper pantheon of Marvel villains, like Doctor Doom, Doctor Octopus, Galactus, and Dracula. So I I kind of <laughs> did think about him for, for that way for a little bit, but. Yeah, yeah. No, I, but, but I agree. I like this world kind of being of, of a separate piece. You can have something like a Dracula, like a Lord of the Vampires in the Marvel Universe, but not necessarily this version. I just – it doesn't it doesn't fit necessarily. That said, I have no problems with like Werewolf of, by Night because it's kind of a generic werewolf. Or, or Blade, yeah, and, yeah. Or, yeah, or thing, main thing. You yeah. Know, we can go back and forth about the Frankenstein's monster, but Dracula needed to be his – own 
pocket universe within mm-hmm. the Marvel universe, separate from everything. I think, yeah, the stories are much more effective because at a certain point you'd figure that like the Avengers would take notice. Right. If this guy's killed this many people, I mean, if he's this serious a threat, send Captain America to cut his head off with a shield or something. Yeah, but Brother uh, uh, Baron Blood is a good mm-hmm. use of a vampire in the Marvel Universe. It's All right. Um, we're going to take a short little promo right now. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the lead story from Tomb of Dracula magazine number one. Don't go away. The World's Strongest Hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Back to talk about Gene Colan's Dracula in glorious black and white. Tomb of Dracula, the magazine version, issue one has an October cover date, which is thematically nice, but an actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, was August 28th, 1979. The magazine cost $1.25, and for that you got several articles about Dracula on screen, played by Frank Langella and George Hamilton, as well as 43 pages of story called Black Genesis, written by the longtime Tomb of Dracula scribe Marv Wolfman, and illustrated by Colin with Bob McCloud inking. The Prologue Nearly 2,000 years ago, a man named Yazdi desperately chases a comet across the stars over the Arabian desert. Yazdi's camel collapses and dies of thirst. Yazdi is near death himself when he finally watches the falling star land in a dark oasis. Yazdi reaches for the comet, which is an emerald rock, and when he touches it, his hand erupts into green glowing flame. Prologue 2 Much, much later, a woman enters an ornately decorated room to find her husband, dressed in the robes of a wizard, decaying in his chair. She doesn't react to his state, but instead takes a ring off of his finger, a ring with a small green glowing jewel, and puts it on her finger. Today, a woman named Sandy Summers talks to her therapist. It's been over three months since Sandy's husband left her, throwing her into a deep depression. At first, she shut herself away watching TV and binge eating. Then she went out and dated and slept with every man she could find in an attempt to prove her value. 
Now she finally feels ready to move on, and one of the first things she does is respond to a job posting for an assistant tour director. Sandy's handsome new boss, David Loring, is leading an international tour of the supernatural. On the day the tour is set to depart from America, David is frantic over last-minute cancellations and no-shows, and generally feeling this entire idea was a mistake. Sandy keeps him calm and organized. The group is made up of six tourists and Sandy and Dave. The last tourist to arrive before they leave is a striking woman who calls herself Mrs. Ebers, the same woman from the second prologue who wears the dark jeweled ring. Once the ship puts out to sea, David repeats their travel itinerary. One of the tourists is skeptical about Dracula's status as a vampire, but Florence Ebers speaks up, as if with authority, that Dracula was a vampire and came to America recently, where he left several bloodless corpses in his wake. This declaration is met with awkward silence, and everyone goes to their cabins. David hits on Sandy, who tells him she is not ready for a new romance, but he tells her he's going to pursue her anyway because it's the 70s and he obviously knows what she really wants better than she does. Flash forward through the tour, everyone has fun at all of their supernatural sites and locations, while David and Sandy begin to fall for each other. When they arrive at Transylvania, David receives a tarot reading from one of the tourists, the newlywed Mrs. Gold, while Sandy looks at the ruins of Castle Dracula in the distance. Mrs. Ebers questions some of the locals about the explosion that destroyed the castle and supposedly killed Dracula, wondering if anyone ever found his body. One of the other tourists, a journalist named Mr. Stewart, is curious why she's so fascinated by Dracula. She tells him to mind his own business. Later, the group boards a horse-drawn carriage just like the kind that took Jonathan Harker up to the castle a century ago. They head up the Borgo Pass, which doesn't seem so creepy in the light of day. When they arrive at the castle ruins, they're filled with disappointment that it doesn't seem more ominous and dreadful. As David recites the history and legend of Dracula, Ebers starts to rummage about the ruins, searching until she finally discovers the skeletal corpse of Count Dracula. She calls the others to her discovery, though it appears as if the body has been there for years, Ebers claims it is only a few weeks old, that Dracula was killed when a silver spoke from a wheelchair pierced his heart. Ebers tries to remove the silver spoke. Stuart tries to stop her, not knowing what she's doing, only that it seems like kind of a bad idea. She lifts her hand and the jeweled ring glows green. Some unearthly force throws Stuart aside. Ebers removes the silver spoke and a swirl of mist covers the ruins, blanketing them all in fog. The skeleton rises, muscle and tissue return, and in moments, Dracula lives. He quickly attacks Betty Gold, feeding on her. Betty's husband tries to defend her, but he is easily knocked down. Stuart takes a crucifix and tries to ward Dracula off, but the Count lifts up a massive stone slab and throws it on Stuart, crushing him. Then, Dracula grabs Sandy and begins to mesmerize her, but before he can suck her blood, Ebers interrupts with the power of her ring. Dracula has seen this ring before and remembers trying to take it from Ebers' husband. She tells him she wants to make a deal, and Dracula summons a heavy fog that covers the hill. When the fog clears, both Florence Ebers and Count Dracula are gone. All that remains are Sandy, David, and the four traumatized surviving tourists. 
Okay, that's about the first half of the story. So let's <laughs> let's talk about what we have seen so far. Um, what do you think of the story and the characters up to this point? I like the Sandy story. I don't know if I like the Ebers story so far. Uh, they don't seem to be connected. They seem to be like two separate story ideas that Marv had that he uh, felt like he was going to graft together. I'm intrigued by the idea of a supernatural tourist kind of a tour um, because I'd like to know what else is on that tour. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. You go to Castle Frankenstein and where else do you go? Um, I guess ultimately it comes down to is I don't know why this is Tomb of Dracula number 71 rather than I mean, he could have could have easily started fresh and made this a non-continuity type of story. I mean, it is in a black and white magazine mm. rather than because and I don't know if the audience picking up the comic regular series that it was canceled just a few months earlier would have transitioned, would have seen this necessarily in the same place in uh, in the magazine sections of uh, bookstores and, ma- and uh, convenience stores. I actually I wonder if this was plotted to be the seventy first issue because as I understand it I think Tomb of Dracula was canceled somewhat subtly by you know Marv Wolfman fighting with Jim Shooter but he was um, it was uh, he was supposed to go to issue seventy two I think is what it was supposed to go to and Wolfman had a story planned out but condensed it all to the, like the last issue which was a double size issue of number 70 so Wolfen didn't get everything this seems to be something completely different uh, I think it was still supposed to end with Dracula dead mm-hmm. which as we've seen many times during the series that he comes back again right right and I mean in the 70th issue uh, it is um, Harker who, uh, who stabs him with the, the spoke from his uh, from his wheelchair, and then he actually has a bomb planted in the wheelchair, which he sets it for like a thirty-second timer or something like that. And then he's he brings the knife down, and it's implied that he is going to cut Dracula's head off and do all these like plant like stuff like garlic in his mouth or something. But then the bomb goes off, so you're let in the as far as the series is concerned, Dracula is dead by the end of it. Uh, Harker Harker died taking him out, but. Because of the way the explosion goes up, I mean, you could have this continue where, you know, he didn't get the head chopped off. So as soon as you pull the, the spoke out, he, he can come back. So it is it is kind of an incontinuity continuation. But it's interesting because nothing else about this book is incontinuity. And you're right. Like, if this was just, like, if this is your first magazine, like, why is this your first Dracula story? Um, you know, like, you know, you wouldn't, if you've got a kind of a finale to that series... Why are you continuing? Why aren't you doing something different? Which I think they'll do in later issues of the magazine. Yeah, issue 70 was a nice, clean-cut ending for the story of for Dracula in the Marvel Universe. This could have easily been its own self-contained story that you didn't necessarily need to go back to read issue number 70. In fact, there I mean, there's nothing to tell you that you needed to go back to issue number 70. Dracula says that he notices that ring, and it, it kind of implies that there was a, an instance during somewhere where – Jacqueline Ebers had met, but I don't think they have ever met before. I don't think it was ever a story that was told. No, it wasn't. And that, yeah, and we'll, we'll kind of come back to that. Like there is a whole lot of backstory and this this other separate supernatural thing. Like like for for being like this first issue, this first story about Dracula. Like Dracula is not the prime supernatural aspect in the story, and this will come up a lot more in the second half mm-hmm. when we get to it. But and they refer to this whole backstory and this past that Dracula has to do with Florence's husband. But that's not something that was ever in the Tomb of Dracula comic. Like, that is completely made up for this magazine. 
So it's why all right, it's just a, it's a weird thing, you know, you kind of doing this double jeopardy thing where you have like, you know, your your main villain is the supernatural thing, but there's also a completely separate supernatural power and force that is also a threat in this. But Sandy's story is a little bit more compelling. You could have easily have done this kind of a gothic type romance mm-hmm. where it's a, a, a triangle yeah, between yeah. the vampire being attracted to Sandy and then Dave, who in my head always sounds like Bob Odenkirk from <laughs> Better from Better Call Saul. So, uh, and that's who I want in the live action version of this. I don't know who else I would cast in the role of Sandy, but Ebers, Mrs. Ebers has the supernatural ring. So she goes on a tour that she hopes goes to to Transylvania on a cruise ship that takes about a week and then have to go through the entire tour to ultimately get to Transylvania when aren't there, there are no direct flights. Why does she need this tour group? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a weird little connection. Um, I do like, I do like the Sandy character. I like her, her story in the beginning, um, going through like the actual, the, the art that we see in what Colin presents the, the second two pages, it's actually pages six and seven, we get this like sort of double page and layout where the top part is the second prologue with Ebers and her, her husband taking the ring. But the bottom half is one spread, one splash across the bottom half. I love that image. Yeah. And we see her in her home. She's, you know, on the couch crying to herself. She's got used tissue. She's got a box of Kleenex or something next to her. There's the picture, the photo of her and her husband on their wedding day on the table. So you can tell she was looking at that. She's crying like the place looks lived in, like with the cleanest. The detailing on her shirt, her blouse is really, really good. I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, this is great. Like, this is good storytelling in that panel. Yes. But unfortunately, I wish it was the full page because the first time I read it, I thought this, that panel was part of the prologue too. Yeah. Yeah. That little bit of a way, like the prologues are kind of confusing. I don't think we really get a whole lot from the top, the second prologue either. I, I don't think that information is necessarily clear from the story or what comes later. No, not at all. I mean, I guess you're supposed to go, aha, she's got the ring when you see that Colin is focused on that at the be- when she joins the tour group but at, the, at this beginning it's just oh this it took me yeah the first reading i had to go double check and circle back to make certain that ebers mrs ebers and sandy were two separate people yeah yeah ebers she reminds me of carmen san diego with her trench coat <laughs> and her hat like the other spread that's on the bottom of pages 14 and 15 with Castle Dracula. Another favorite. <laughs> yeah. I, love I mean, that. like just the gray tones of the clouds. Um, this feels like, I mean, we were kind of talking before the break about how, you know, like the seeing the Tomb of Dracula comic in black and white. This scale, these tones, like this feels like how Dracula should be presented. It should mm-hmm. be in this washed black and white, this, this gray sort of like, I mean, the Marvel magazines have become like my new favorite, like <laughs> like subgenre yes. or like category of like, like I've been collecting like the last couple of years. I've got like twenty or thirty of them um, between Conan and other stuff, and I just I love just like the feel of this paper and the look of the grays and the, the inks and everything, and, it makes, and especially with a Gene Colan work, all of it makes good use of the medium. It, yes. you don't have to necessarily worry about color separations from the seventies uh, mucking up your your artwork. It, it's it's and the fact that it's not code also helps a little bit as yeah, well. Yeah. But yeah, once again, the bottom two page spread is absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. And then I love the, the next page when we see Dracula, the skeletal remains and everything with the spoke. Uh, and then 
a page after that when he is sort of reborn with the swirling mm-hmm. kind of clouds and the smoke and as he attacks them and the capage to, to borrow the phrase of the podcast review the capage that gene colon does with dracula and like how like it's it always feels like kind of it's blowing out like it, it makes his body mass seem like three times the size and you can never quite tell what's cape and what wings and what stage of transformation he's in um, I just I love the way that he does that, and, Dra- and I was going to say Dracula really appreciates a good cape. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does, and he makes you appreciate too. Um, and the, the swiftness of this fight, the brutality, and how quick he just picks up this like piece of like like concrete, just char- like throws it on this Stuart guy, this poor guy who was trying to like who dared to, to defy him and stand up to him, and just the crunch sound effect as he's buried under this. I do like the look, uh, the expression on um, Dracula's face. Right after he's taken the blood from, uh, I forget what her name is, Mrs. Betty. Cold, yeah, yeah, she's got the. He's got this look like, hmm, I want something else from the buffet. <laughs> yeah, it's like that was good. Yeah, and then you know, uh, then Evers shows up and again gives this mysterious. Uh, there's some sort of background here, and kind of leaves the survivors just standing there, like, "What the hell just happened? One of us is dead. One of us has like been, been like cut open and bleeding." Um, yeah, Mrs. Ebers channels her inner uh, phantom stranger. <laughs> yes. Nice, nice. Okay, picking up the story. Yeah. The tourists return to London where Betty Gold is in critical condition. Inspector Kelm of Scotland Yard talks to her husband, Alan. While others may have dismissed Alan's claim that his wife was attacked by a vampire, Kelm believes him, having had previous encounters with Dracula. Kelm advises the young man to take care of his wife, help her recover, and then do everything they can to forget about this terrible encounter and not seek revenge on the Count. Kelm has witnessed obsession destroy people who pursued Dracula. Elsewhere in the city, Dracula flies about in bat form looking for a meal. In a hotel, David tries to get Sandy to come to bed with him. He doesn't understand why she might not be in the mood. She tells him that after her husband left, she forfeited control of her life and would do whatever men wanted in order to please them. Just when she finally thought that she was regaining control of her life, Dracula used his spell to turn her back into a puppet. It's put a real whammy on her, but David is still horny, so he tries to convince her that screwing him would be an act of her own choosing, not someone else's. It's amazing he doesn't try reverse psychology on her. Meanwhile, a horde of ferocious rats converge on the hotel, commanded by the Count. They climb the walls and crash through the window into David and Sandy's room. The rats swarm on David, biting into his chest, chewing his flesh. Sandy screams as David falls onto the bed and passes out from the agony. Dracula appears at the window, sending the rats scattering. He mesmerizes Sandy again. She opens the window and lets him in. She removes her robe and stands before him, naked, a willing victim. He takes her in his arms, but just before he can feed on her, David wakes up and uses all of his remaining strength to open the bedside drawer and pulls out a holy Bible. He thrusts it at Dracula. The power of the book burns Dracula's face. The vampire dives out the window, turns into a bat, and flies away. Florence Ebers enters their room and helps Sandy get David to the hospital. David is treated and bandaged. Inspector Kelm wishes he could get in touch with Rachel Van Helsing or Frank Drake, as they were more knowledgeable of Dracula. Florence Ebers walks out onto Westminster Bridge and uses the power of the ring to summon Dracula. 
out of the full moonlight, he comes in bat form, shrieking down at her, but at the last minute, he averts her and takes human form. He reminds her that he can kill her in numerous ways, but she reminds him that he wants the power of the ring and he won't get it if she's dead. She tells the story of the ring, how on the same night that Jesus Christ was born, Golem Yazdi tracked the falling star to a desert oasis and found a glowing green stone in the crater. When he held it, the stone gave him the magic power to part the desert sands, to forge the sands into a towering temple, and to destroy it just as easily. In short, the gem gave him the power to make or change reality. No one knows how or when Yazdi died, but eventually, a thousand years later, the stone ended up in the possession of a German nobleman who'd been excommunicated for his satanic beliefs. He cut a tiny jewel from the larger stone and placed it into his ring. With the power of this ring, he led a quest of revenge against the church, which included starting the Black Plague. Eventually, the ring found its way into the possession of a dark mage named Augustus Ebers. Dracula attacked the mage and tried to take the ring, but couldn't get it. The power of the ring kept the mage alive in a comatose state. Florence Ebers tells Dracula that her husband had located the original gem from which the ring jewel was cut. Working together, they can find it and split its power between them. Dracula agrees to partner with her, though silently plans on betraying her the first chance he gets. Together, they travel across the desert where they come to a secret and majestic mosque made of gold and intricate engravings. Inside the temple, they find the bodies of would-be thieves. Eber says the German placed a curse on the gem. It took her husband years to find the spell that would let him touch the ring, and it took her five years to master it. At last, they find the oasis where the gem landed. The temple was built around it. Dracula goes to retrieve it, telling Ebers he doesn't believe her warnings about curses, that he was going to betray her anyway. She predicted as much and uses the ring to bury him in the sand. Then she retrieves the gem and the power flows through her as a kind of ecstasy never felt before. She uses the power to teleport back to her home where Augustus still sits in his chair a decaying corpse. She puts the gem on the desk before him, then she summons Dracula back. Using the power of the gem, Dracula is her slave. She explains that she will transfer her husband's soul and essence into Dracula's body, an ironic punishment for the man who killed Augustus. But before that happens, she wants to feel Dracula. Sexually, she forces him to kiss her. The power of the gem brings Augustus back to life, but it won't renew his flesh. He still looks like a rotting, fetid corpse. When he rises, all he can think of is the power of the gem. He unleashes a wave of energy that snaps the wooden beams in the ceiling. It collapses, knocking Florence to the ground. With her hold over Dracula broken, the Count attacks Augustus, meaning to kill him again and take the power. But Augustus breathes green fire on Dracula. The Count thrashes against the walls, trying to smother the flames. As he does, the whole room goes up as Dracula falls, too weak to fight. He tries to summon Florence to him so that he can feed on her and renew his strength. Instead, she picks up a piece of broken support beam and smashes the Yazdi gem, destroying it. Augustus demands to know why, even as he begins to die again. She tells him that she tried to bring him back for love. She didn't care about the power, only him. But he couldn't see that. As the room goes up in flames, the two Evers die together as Dracula manages to escape and fly away. 
Back in the London hospital, Al Gold tells David and Sandy that his wife is going to pull through. As they head out, Sandy tells David that she can't be the lover he wants. Her husband leaving her and her two traumatic experiences with Dracula have convinced her that the only thing in her life that she can control is her death, and she goes up to the hotel room alone. David wanders the street in disbelief, wondering if there is any way he can convince her of his love, when suddenly a huge bat swoops down from the night and attacks him. David runs, runs for his life. The bat chases him. David falls, picks himself back up, and runs again as the bat swoops down to nip at his clothes. He runs back to the hotel, but can't get to the door. He runs around the side to the fire escape. As he's climbing up, the bat swoops down and grabs him, pulls him over the railing, and lifts him up high into the sky. Inside her room, Sandy is packing her suitcase when David's body is thrown through the window. Dracula follows and grabs David by the throat, saying he will turn Sandy into his bride. David begs Sandy to fight Dracula's control and do something. She does. Breaking the Count's control over her, Sandy lifts up the nightstand Bible and wards him back to the window. She tells him to get out, that he has no power over her. Hurt by the power of the holy book, Dracula retreats out the window. He says these two people have been more trouble than they're worth and to hell with them. He never wants to see them again, and he flies off. Sandy cradles the injured David in her arms, telling him everything will be all right tomorrow. The end. So, (laughs) now that the story's complete, what do you think? Well, man... There's a lot going on in this story. As I, as I said earlier, it's two stories that he's kind of grafted together. I guess Wolfman is trying to make a parallel between Mrs. Ebers and Sandy as being two women who are who are trying to make decisions about their lives. And it's kind of a mess, to be honest with you. I mean, you've got kind of a gothic romance going on with Sandy, David, and, and Dracula. And then you also have Dracula, Mrs. Ebers, and an Infinity Stone. <laughs> yeah. And you've got 13 pages in which Sandy doesn't even appear in the damn story. It, it turns into Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, like the, the second half of the story is where a lot of things get weird and kind of fall apart. And it's like there's like three different stories here. It's like kind of like broken up. As I was writing the, the synopsis, I was like, hang on. Why is Ebers doing this? First of all, why did she need Dracula's help at all? Like, like there's just like oh, so many questions here. Like, why does she need him if she knows where the gem is? If she knows the curse? If she knows the power to control the ring and everything? Why does she need Draco? Okay, once she's got, once he he gets the the gem for her, once she collects it, then she's like, okay, I want to use, I want to transfer my dead or comatose husband's soul into your body because it's younger and healthier. Okay, that's kind of understandable, but. Again, why Dracula specifically? Okay, I guess it's an ironic punishment. You still didn't need to bring him back to life at this point. But then, okay, once you've done that part, like, wait, you're going to put your husband in Dracula's body, but you want to sleep with Dracula first before your husband is in there? I guess he's just trying to test drive. <laughs> you want to make certain yeah. that you're going to test drive the new car. You yeah. might as well. Yeah, I guess that's her, her yeah. thinking. Oh, yeah. He, actually, he wasn't that good of a lay. I'm, I'm going to – let's find – let's like go on to somebody else. Like who else can we put my husband's body into? And like her husband is just kind of like there watching, like is sort of like half awake, half not. And then like once they start fighting and like her whole thing, like the reason she destroys a gem, she's like, I want to bring you back because I, I loved you, but all you care about is the power. It's like – 
what have you been doing the the previous forty pages? <laughs> Except like, it, it, yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. That that turnaround, that that realization, kind of feels like Wolfman realized, like, oh crap, I'm running out of pages. I need to need to tie this up in a nice, you know, neat bow. And yeah. I still can't get over the fact that this is a, a story, a sequel or a continuation to a story that I don't think ever appeared. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Because we get, yeah, we hear this whole backstory like this. This is like the culmination of some really long revenge plot, but we don't know what it's based on because this, it's all original. Like these characters, Ebers, both of them never appeared before. This whole thing could have been in like Tomb of Dracula 30 and 31 or something like that, but it didn't. Like he, he's a brand new. And yet he does bring Inspector Kelm back, who was in uh, half a dozen issues of Tomb of Dracula, and he even mentions Rachel Van Helsing and, and Frank Drake. Yeah, which was kind of like, oh, remember the Tomb of Dracula series? That was pretty cool, wasn't it? <laughs> it really could have been two separate stories, and they both could have been pretty good by themselves, I think. Uh, as I'm more interested in the Sandy one. I mean, as a, it's a story of Dave and 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 Dracula both trying to get into her pants. Yeah, really. And I like the fact that they they don't necessarily. I mean, she she. I mean, she's kind of going off on like this little romance with Dave, but when she tells him, you know, she's like, "Look, like I this she she has been really kind of damaged by the what her her divorce, what her husband leaving did, and then what Dracula is able to do to turn her into a puppet. She feels victimized. Um, you could draw rape allegories." To this and everything like that, and and when she says she's the only thing she can control is her death, I was or is David thinks she's going to go upstairs and commit suicide. There's a lot of stuff going on here, and and I was trying to decide if she's a strong character or not. Um, I think if she ended up saying the heck with both of them and walked off at the end of the story, I think she'd definitely be a stronger character than where it's kind of implied at the end that she and and David are going to end up together. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I mean, it, well, yeah, the last. The last shot is there of her cradling him and comforting him. So, And talking about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Right. We also, we don't really know what breaks Dracula's final hold over her. What is it? Why is she able to resist him then when she wasn't able to resist him before? Uh, that's a good question. I, why does he even go back to her <laughs> yeah. at, at this point? Other than the fact that narratively speaking, we should probably see what happened to the character who started off this entire issue. Right. And even like, I mean, like Mes- he started mesmerizing her in Transylvania. She, he and Florence leave in that like sort of like mist. She calls up the fog and they disappear. The next time we see them, they're completely separate and he comes back trying to get to Sandy again. Like, how much time has passed? They had to travel from Transylvania to London. And Why did they travel to London to, for medical treatment? Which I did a quick search. It's like, it's a day, well, it's about a, a few hours flight, I guess. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to get to an airport. And, but you could have gone to Paris. You could have gone to, to Rome. You could have gone to Berlin. A lot closer. Yeah. Uh, we figured that even Transylvania would be able to treat a vampire bite in their yeah, hospital. You'd think they would have some experience with it. And then Dracula comes back and meets uh, Ebers late, later on at Westminster Bridge, which is a great page and a, a great little uh, image there when they're on the bridge. But why didn't they have that conversation before? Like, yeah, why is he still interested in Sandy? Like, even though he, like, saw her at Transway, like, he could be feeding on anybody. Why does he target her? Why does he go back to them the second time again like at the very end, like you asked? And then when they, like, fight him off, he's just like, okay – this is more trouble than it's worth. I'm done with you guys. Like, Could just easily have gone to Mrs. Gold. She's got yeah. a refill. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you really, you didn't want to try and kill them or something just like to, to prove your power. You're just going to let them go. Cause, uh, 
I've come to realize that in many ways, Marv Wolfman, his career has been benefited by, by being associated with really great artists, with Gene Colan and Perez and, and even Jerry Ordway. And this is kind of probably a good example of it. it. This is a great story if you look at it panel by panel and absorb the the, the Gene Colan artwork. And, and, and it's beautiful throughout this entire issue. But when you really dive down into the story, it's a mess. It is. And I, and I, I agree. Like, if you we were to read this just as, like, prose or as a script, there are all these questions. But I think it moves fast. It has a sense of atmosphere of kind of intriguing characters there's a there's enough of a mystery here that you want to follow it along like i don't think it's ever a story that gets boring or you're like oh, why am i why am i bothering with this yeah i mean you do go to a point like wait wasn't i just in london why am i now in somewhere in the middle east how did we get here yeah i mean i don't i, I wouldn't give the story an f because i think there's enough like just like kind of just like fun and interesting characters and and intriguing bits about there that it it made me want to turn the pages and everything like that so i would get put the the story kind of in the c range but I definitely agree that what what makes me like just relish these pages and want to keep looking at this and want the story to go on and want it to dive deeper into it is the art. I mean, I have said I have I've waxed Colin's car a number of times and I have said that he's my favorite artist. But the art in this particular, the way it looks in this magazine, uh, just every page just kind of looks looks a little bit delicious. And I really I, I don't know how often Bob McLeod inked him, but I think it, they they do really really well together. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've seen some bad examples of the wrong inker with uh, Gene Cullen. I'm recent, I'm right now I'm kind of going through a slow reread of the Tomb of Dracula yeah. series, and I just ran across one where Vince Coletta did the inks, and it was Eesh. like, Ugh. But, yeah, this is just absolutely beautiful. It does great with the, the, the black and white format, um, and I think color is a nice enhancement to Cullen's work, but he definitely doesn't need it. I mean, like on pages like 34 and 35, when he and Evers actually go to this like temple, this ancient mosque, you even see like how, how light it is in like the first panel, like where they, it's not actually like, they don't actually have like full black inks. They're like more kind of like grayscale and like shaded out because you get the sense of like the, the how like sandblasted this thing is and how it's like just aged by time and everything like that. You don't even get the same, the same level of black in those early panels. Oh, yeah, Exactly. And it's the power of his of, of Colin's artwork that makes you not even question the fact that one page earlier they were in London. You don't even necessarily know how they got there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's just kind of irrelevant. I, I didn't know if it was the ring that transported them there, or did she have a, a a flight on standby, and then why didn't she just do this to get to Transylvania anyway, mm. rather than go on some tedious tour? And yeah, and Evers like her her signature look. That's Carmen San Diego look changes when they go on this mission and this excursion because now she's dressed as like Isis or something like that. She's got sort of like almost like more of a toga look going, like with this braided belt around her waist and and a cape and a cape. Don't know if she quite rocks the cape in the same way as Dracula, but well, I guess well, nobody when you does, hang out but... with Dracula, you got to bring the cape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, yeah. I I love the look of uh, Augustus Ebers and like how like his half decayed face with one of his eyeballs gone and like mm-hmm. the other one just kind of sitting in an empty orb. Um, and I think this is probably I don't know if this something like this would have gotten away with the in the comics code, uh, but this definitely not being outside the comics code, he's able to to embrace the gorier aspects of uh, of a horror comic. Right, right. 
and the nudity. <laughs> we get we get a couple yeah. of shots of Sandy naked, um, which it's not necessary. I mean, there, there's to an extent it's it's there just for like the the titillation and the salaciousness because, but that's also part of the genre. Like, hey kids, no code. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not code approved. One of the things that I ask uh, every guest on the show is if you could have one, or I mean, because this is an extra long story, one or two pages of original art from this story. Uh, if you could pick any, what do you think? What would you want? What are your favorite pages? Well, actually, I've got two, and we've kind of already covered them. It's the one, the opening page of uh, Sandy in her apartment. Mm-hmm. I like that bottom portion of that page because I think the storytelling in that, you know everything there is to know about Sandy in that one panel. Yeah. And I also like the bottom half of the where they reach Castle Dracula and just the breathtaking vista of the the destroyed castle the the clouds and just the the, the group standing in kind of awe over it it's just it's a beautiful beautiful image yeah I'd love to put that on my wall yeah yeah it's really good um, I, I agree I like all of those uh, I like the the image of um, Carmen San Diego is standing uh, on the bridge. Uh, with Big Ben in the background, with her arms up, kind of waiting for Draco. I love that. But I, I mean, if I could get any one page, maybe two. I really like pages forty-four and forty-five, with David being like chased by the giant bat. I'm mm. um, just like running through the city, running through the fog with him by the river, and it coming out of the fog and going after him. I just, I love those pages. I mean, I love the way Colin draws people running, especially when they're kind of like running in terror, like the, the exaggerated angles of their legs and like their feet and everything. So, you know, as much as I kind of like you know, criticize the story. I, I do ask myself, like when I pick up a random comic these days, uh, based on this one issue, would I pick up the rest of this? Would I continue to read the series? And ultimately, believe it or not, yes, because I purchased every, the entire se- series on comicology nice. recently. And it's kind of varying degrees of quality going forward. I mean, the next issue is Wolfman and Ditko, and it wasn't as um, insane as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is the only one that Colin worked on. Actually, no, he worked on a couple others, I Did think. He? Uh but not with but not with Oh, but not with Wolfman. He did no. issue number 3 with Wolfman. And then after that, uh Roger McKenzie pops up in issue 4, but okay. Wolf this is I also was kind of curious where this was in terms of Wolfman's career and this we're like a year away from him, less than a year from away from him leaving Marvel to go to DC. Mm-hmm. Right. And it kind of has that feel like, you know, I'm not getting along with the boss. Um, <laughs> this is okay, but I just I, – I think I need different surroundings. I, I've been recently – I've been going through um, – listening to it on Audible as I kind of drive around and do stuff. Um, again, the uh, Marvel, the untold story uh, by, by Sean Howe, and I finished the, uh, the the Jim Shooter era recently on that. And, whew, good times, good times. Oh, Yeah. Kept the kept the, the kept the trains running on time. There you go. There you go. I, I mean, he produced. I mean, uh, there was a some of my favorite stories came out of his era. So I, I could say that. But would I ever want to work for that asshole? Hell no. <laughs> uh, he was pleasant enough when I met him. But I'll say that. Yeah, that's good. Um. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say this is one of my favorite Tomb of Dracula stories because, as you said, like the story is kind of all over the place, and it's it's just a weird inclusion. Like, is this a sequel? Are we trying to do something brand new? You're bringing in this other supernatural element, and this isn't this isn't necessarily the best user friendly story for somebody brand new to this. Right? Like, this isn't for for an issue one. This is not the right story to tell. 
No, it, it kind of speaks to kind of like a lack of confidence in the story itself mm-hmm. uh, by by kind of half measures tying it into the original story. When if it was its own thing, separated into have the 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 Sandy stuff as the first story, have the the Raiders of the Lost Ark ever story as the second story, you would have had a, probably a, a much better reading experience than trying to graft these two stories together. I guess. And part of that, I, like, I mean, I need to do. I have tried – I've only read Tomb of Dracula all the way through one time, and that was a decade, more than a decade ago. Uh, I've tried to go back and do rereads, and I only – I generally like lose interest after 20 issues or I get distracted and I, and I need a break. So I would like to go back and, and kind of get a more of a measured sense of does it feel like Marv Wolfman stayed on the book too long? Because I definitely know, I mean, by, I mean, we talked about issue 50 has the Silver Surfer, but I do remember like towards the back half of the series, there was a lot of other kind of other supernatural elements and other things. And it felt like maybe he needed to take a break from Dracula or he, he kept on bringing other things because he felt like he had told all the Dracula stories. So he's bringing other villains, other characters. And maybe by this time it was, you know, he just, he couldn't tell just a straight gothic romance or horror story with Dracula without some other element to it. I don't know. I don't know. That might be an unfair criticism. Again, it's been so long since I've read like the last 30 issues of the, of the series. Well, and, and the other question I usually ask when I go do a random comic is would I recommend it? And mm-hmm. ultimately, I think I would recommend this. Maybe not for the story. Keep your expectations kind of low. Mm-hmm. But the artwork makes it worth it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. The artwork makes this just like a, a treat. Like, I, I'm, I wouldn't even – I mean so much so that I wouldn't even call this kind of like a chore kind of like – a struggle to get through a weird no. irregular story. It's a fun read. It makes no damn sense in a lot of places. And you kind of I wish it was a little campier, to be honest with you, but yeah. I don't think that's I don't think that's in Wolfman's, you know, toolbox. Right. It needed a loop maybe, you know, just a little bit more of a dark whimsy to it. Mm-hmm. But uh but that's how good the art is and how much I, I enjoyed uh, not just I mean his his normal pencils, but like what McLeod does with the inking and the, and the wash, the the scale of the the magazine. I'm I'm gonna put a ton of pictures for this one up on the uh, the website. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast, definitely go to the Fire and Water Podcast website to see the image gallery associated with this one. Um, Greg, thank you very much uh, for allowing yourself to be resurrected in the (laughs) world of podcasting again. Hey, out of the Marv Wolfman stories that you and I have covered, this one is definitely at the top of the list. (laughs) Was it just just the Teen Titans Tower? Yeah. I am still so sorry that you – what I subjected you through in – You wonder why I've been on a kind of personal podcast hiatus? Hey, we had X we had X Wing Rogue Squadron issue one. Remember that? Yes, that was true. good times yes, too. Those are good times. It was a simple time before <laughs> before the dark times. <laughs> and and I'll come back anytime throughout this. You gave me my break, podcasting break. I will yeah. Anytime you ask, I'll be there. I appreciate it. Um and listeners, if you want to hear more from Greg, uh go back I mean I can't say I recommend reading Secret Wars 2, but um, you and Sean did some some good work covering that um, on the podcast, Secret Wars and Beyond. Uh, and definitely your 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 interest for um, Squadron Supreme was really, really good in that, that story, that series too. I wish I had something really to plug coming up, but I really don't have anything podcast-related on the uh, – in, in the immediate future, maybe, as I said, maybe – 
this is going to start, you know, the itch again to to cover something. But you, know, you can, you know, I'm doing some random un- Marvel Unlimited uh, on Twitter where I randomly pick a, a comic on there and just go through a, a few basic questions after answer a few basic questions after I read it. So you you, you can you can find me there. Yeah. Those are those are fun. I enjoy reading those when I see that you drop in like how it's like, all right, what's the best part of this story? What's the worst part? Of, or just like a, a random question that you what have. What disappointed you me? I'm trying to keep it kind of keep it positive. There's I I don't I don't think anybody necessarily goes out of the way to make a bad comic. Right. We can argue about that, but but what disappointed me? Mm-hmm. It's a fun follow. I definitely yeah, follow that on Greg. And, and uh, if you ever do come out of uh, retirement for podcasting, I'll be there for that. Um, until then, thank you again for coming on the show and talking about the story by my favorite artist, Listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. If you liked this discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts, both on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. FW Presents can also be found on Spotify, if that's your jam. If you like this show or other shows on the Fire and Water Network, Please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. And as always, thank you for listening. I know a thousand ways to help you forget.